Golding. Luca, thank you so much for being here, man. I appreciate you being here. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. So you were talking about the radio show that you... Um... Yeah. Okay. So what is it about now? <laughs> so about six months ago, I started working at Triple J, the radio station, yeah. um, just as doing like the late night show. That's yeah. sort of where they start you off, um, doing the 11 till 2 slot. So I've done a whole bunch of those. And then about a month ago or six weeks ago, started doing this segment on the drive show with Hover and Hing uh, every Tuesday afternoon where they have me watch and review different dating reality shows. Is it fun? <laughs> um, the <laughs> After a while, it just gets boring. Just yeah. Doing the segment is fun and uh, I always end up having a great time, but definitely yeah. like watching the shows and trying to think of something to say about them is a bit of a fucking grind. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I just, then, then do you want to take it away? Dan yeah, has something I'll, to say. Well, I'm quite thrilled to have you in today oh, because too kind, too kind. the show that you did last year yes. was not just the best show I saw of the oh comedy festival God, last year, but it was blush. the best comedy festival I've ever seen. Oh, my God. It was just so kind. deeply personal. and <laughs> Thanks, it man. That really means a lot. You had a nice bow in at the end and mm -hmm. I just let's just open it up to how you came about writing that show. Yeah, sure, that all sure. Um, yeah, I guess for uh, listeners who might not have seen it, um, it was, yeah, I was obviously talking about uh, a lot about asexuality and sexuality, stuff like that. Uh, stuff like I say, very personal to me. <laughs> stuff I had talked about a little bit on stage before, um, but not very much. And this definitely felt like the time in my life or whatever to go in on it. Mm. And I was so glad I did. It was very sort of um, rewarding show to do, I suppose. Uh, all that sort of stuff definitely like takes a bit of a toll mentally, mm. and it can be a bit exhausting. But at the end of the day, I was like super happy with. Yeah, that show and sort of, um, yeah, it felt great. It was very, very satisfying show to do. But literally, you, you saw the show, so you would know. Uh, it was framed, I uh, used as a framing device, the fact that I wanted to do a show about the guy that ate an aeroplane. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. <laughs> he was a real guy. You might remember him from the Guinness Book of World Records uh, and Ripley's Believe It or Not and stuff like that. But he's a real guy who ate an aeroplane. And for years, for a long time, like before I ever started doing thinking about doing the show, literally since I reckon I was about like 18, 18 or 19, I've been quite obsessed with that guy. And I talked about it in the show and I... It was a joke. It's jokes in the show, but it is actually true. I've been quite obsessed with um, just like the fact that him eating an airplane, what it says about meaning and values and how you decide you s to spend your time. You want to eat an airplane. Totally. And <laughs> it's always it just clicked away in the back of my mind of like that is him doing that is such an interesting sort of um, comment or reflection on, you know, deciding your own values and not letting society uh, tell you what's important and stuff like that, mm. which I know is mm. strange, but people have different ways of understanding different concepts or whatever. And for whatever reason, he really helped me <laughs> understand <laughs> that idea, him and his plate eating ways. And so I remember uh, like obviously there was COVID and everything and then in 2021 I did a comedy festival show which was like um, it was just called Old New Other. So it was literally like this list of old jokes, mm -hmm. list of new jokes, bucket of other shit, got people to choose out of that. 
Uh, and that was sort of a bit of a, not a filler show, but coming off the back of COVID and everything, yeah. I didn't, didn't really have a strong idea of what I wanted to do. I was like, oh, this will be fun to, you know, just do something for a year mm -hmm. without thinking too much about it. It was safe. Yeah, yeah. totally, totally. Um, and it's pretty, you know, lighthearted and yeah, a lot less, mm. uh, I guess, personal commitment, um, which was good. I, I loved that show as well. But while doing that show and thinking about it and doing a little bit of asexuality material and stuff like that, uh, this was the other great thing about doing, quote, unquote, a filler show. It gave me an extra year to think about what I wanted to do the year afterwards or mm. whatever. So in like Comedy Festival 2021, uh, I remember I was having pretty much this conversation with Blake going like, oh, yeah, the show's fun, but, you know, it doesn't. it's a bit lighthearted and it's a bit filler or whatever. He was like, oh, that's cool. Have you thought about what you want to do next year? And I said, oh, I'm going to do a show about the guy that ate an aeroplane. <laughs> <laughs> and he remembers the conversation so distinctly because he, in the back of his mind, was like, to me, he was like, oh, yeah, cool, that sounds fun. And I sort of described to him what I wanted it to be. And he recalls in his mind, go like, oh, Lucas, insane. And <laughs> what is he talking about? That's an idea. You have a billion ideas for a billion things to do for shows and most of them pass through your brain and you never think about them again, you know yeah. what I mean? But that one, it just really stuck with me. And so as soon as I started thinking about how to put together a show and doing a show about him, it just it all seemed to fit together very well with a lot of this sort of asexuality material. And, you know, I felt like I was kind of moving in a new direction in my life or like self moving in a direction of self-discovery or whatever. And so that small seed of an idea, I hadn't thought much more about it, but I just said, I want to do a show about the guy that ate an airplane. And I did. <laughs> Obviously, the show was also about a lot of other things, but it came from that small idea. And I'd like to think it never really got too far away from that like it was yeah. very much about him you know that's such an interesting idea did you ever end up talking to him no <laughs> yeah, that would be so fun Imagine i would love doing to the podcast with him that would be incredible yeah, such incredible <laughs> like, bro, why he is dead so it would be a great podcast oh, <laughs> it would yeah. be a great podcast but there's like it's a god i should know this i would have known this last year but there's some medical name for that uh disorder or whatever mm. because it's the ability to like eat and digest metal but also you have a compulsion to do it yeah. and they think that the two go hand in hand like the fact that you're even thinking about you know the fucking looking at the camera going oh, i could eat that <laughs> means that Jeez. you you can like it's some weird physical uh, ability thing where if you if you want to you can digest it's really crazy anyway <laughs> how did he die off what did he die off just of old age which is did amazing he right he finished up eating the whole plane he finished the whole plane Holy uh shit. he also ate like a few a bunch of bikes he ate a microwave Holy he ate shit. like a computer um yeah he was an incredible guy Jeez, god bless <laughs> wow okay. so how did so 10 years man yeah i just I saw your recent instagram post mm. it wasn't recent it was, i think you put a month before like a month ago it was on i know specifically what day it was february the 14th valentine's day well yeah one a 10 years complete in comedy that is the day that i started doing stand-up or well, the day that i moved to melbourne and you know made a proper girl of it it's what, a long time. What have you what have you learned from ten years of doing comedy? Oh my god. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Who can even say? So it d in the realm of comedy or the realm of what has it taught me about life or just yeah. anything in general? Just anything in general. Like it, what have you learned over ten years about yourself as well? Like what did you learn? Like the first time, how was it? The first time, first well, time. See, now I tell a small white lie to clean up the story. I say I did move to Melbourne and start doing comedy. That is the day I consider myself having started move, doing comedy on the 14th of uh, February 2013. But before that, I had done three gigs. I had done Class Clowns, the Melbourne mm -hmm. International Comedy Festival um, 
program or whatever you'd call it where it's for people who are in high school to try out doing stand-up. And so I was in year 12 and I did that. And I remember being so crazy, unbelievably nervous for that in a way I've never been about stand-up ever again and about anything in my life ever again. It's like... So we're talking about the first ever time you got on stage. First ever time. So I would have been 17 and the way that thing works is you like get in a room. It was with uh, Xavier Michaelides who I don't think does stand-up anymore but was like a great, great comedian Mm -hmm. for many years uh, and he's now like a very successful writer. Mm -hmm. Um, He was... They sent like a mentor um, and there was only four of us, only four kids, me and another kid from my school and then two kids from Bendigo which is about an hour from where I grew Mm -hmm. up. Uh, so we traveled to Bendigo, me and this other kid from my school, two other kids sit in a room. They sort of teach you about comedy, how to write jokes. You come there with a set and they sort of help you refine it a bit and stuff like that. And then you do a show that night for just, I think some members of the public, but mostly just family and friends and stuff like that. Mm. And I was just absolutely shitting myself. I felt like even all day, even for the workshop part of the day, I couldn't like think and I could barely listen and like I couldn't hear people. It felt like there was like flashbangs going off in my ear at all time. I think I was so in love with stand-up and it had somewhere in the back of my mind for ages that maybe I would want to do it someday, Mm -hmm. but it never felt like that would ever happen or that would ever be a real thing. And so then when the day came, it was like, oh, I guess this is, I'm doing it for the first time. What is this going to mean? Will I like it? Will it go well? Will it be horrible? Will I cry? Will I even be able to speak on stage? (laughs) And I just, there's so many unknowns. It was very overwhelming and um, nerve wracking. How was it? Did you? Uh, I have the set on video somewhere. I'm kind of scared to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) But I won the like heat thing or whatever. So Mm. Yeah, it mustn't have been too bad, or at least I was the best of four. So it <laughs> kind of been horrible. And then I did the uh, the state final and then the national final as well. Oh. I don't remember being as nervous for those. Definitely like very nervous, but nothing compares to that that first one. First time you yeah. ever got on stage. Yeah. <laughs> so you were the only kid. You were two kids from your school. Yeah, me and my friend Jack Carey, who uh, sort of pushed the stamp a little bit, but um, not anymore. He lives out in the country. The lovely fella. What made you go out on the stage? Like, were you the were you that guy in the group? Were you the class clown or like the funny guy in the group? I wasn't really. Uh, and a lot of my friends, I think, were quite surprised to hear that I was doing it. I think maybe I was like funny in conversation, but I was definitely very shy, yeah. um, super reserved kid. And I also went to a very small uh, school, like really tiny school out in the country. There was literally like 25 people in my whole year. Mm. Um and when I first started at school, there was like 20 people at the whole school. Like it was real tiny. Uh, and so I think maybe that everyone was good friends and stuff like that, but it meant that there was no real class clown or silly mm. characters or anything like that because mm. it's such a small class yeah. size. It was like, oh, hey, everyone, what's up? <laughs> yeah, but I'm just trying to understand the motivation. Like if did you ever think that you'd actually do this or the opportunity came and you're like, shit, this is this will be cool. I'll do it. Yeah. Was it something like that? I'm pretty sure... It was my friend Jack Carey who did it with me. Um, we were both pretty obsessed with comedy, comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, like watched all the galas on telly and hunted down anything we could on YouTube. Yeah. And this was in the days of like, um, this is in like 2011. So uh, mm-hmm. like Pirate Bay and stuff were yeah. really big. Mm-hmm. So I just remember like you used to be able to download big torrent packs of just like 15 comedy albums all at once and sometimes they wouldn't even be labeled it's just like download 15 stand-up comedy albums and you get them and that was like my first time discovering um 
I guess, the wider world of comedy, like Maria Bamford and Carl Kinane mm-hmm. and Mark Maron and stuff like that. That was sort of all my first... I really loved what I saw on TV in Australia, but yeah. those were the first people I was like, oh, this is something I want to do. Like, this is yeah. something I... I guess I had an admiration for them. They seemed very, mm-hmm. like, uh, sure of themselves and they had ideas and they were a fully developed person. And as a, you know, as a young <laughs> teen, mm-hmm. especially as a, you know, leaning queer in a small country town, you're kind of like, oh, man, I'd love to be as <laughs> confident in who I am as these people yeah. are, you know what I mean? So I think that was the start of me going... I want to do this one day and I would say that and me and Kerry would talk about it and stuff like that and then he came to me and goes, hey, have you heard of this class clowns thing? And I was like, no, what's that? And he's like, well, you talk about doing stand-up comedy, you can actually do it. And I was like, oh, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. Oh, okay. So were you nervous like when you heard? But I can't really what's remember. Your reaction like, shit, I want to do this or like, oh, were you dicey? I think I was excited but mm. definitely super nervous and definitely just like, I almost couldn't believe that it was real because I wouldn't have seen that much live stand-up comedy as well. Mm-hmm. So I think the path to how it could be a real thing that would happen was just totally, I just couldn't mm-hmm. understand it. You know what I mean? It's like, this, mm-hmm. how do people do this? Yeah. This is something that real Where people do. Where come from? <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. And yeah. who gives you permission to get up on stage? It's, just who, talk right? shit. Exactly, right, <laughs> yeah. So just the fact that it was an option in my life was quite... um overwhelming that's all that's such a lucky thing to have like do you think if that wouldn't have happened you would have been here i wonder about that sometimes i really do um i think probably i would have ended up finding some way into it because i was so obsessed um but maybe not who knows like jack was definitely super encouraging to me and i'll be grateful to him always who are the comedians that influenced you um early oh, days early days yes those were definitely some really big ones um Kyle Kinane Maria Bamford and Mark Maron specifically I remember uh Mitch Hedberg I think before I liked that style of comedy which um if there's listeners who don't know it's pretty like I guess personal mm. or um you know revealing or deep or whatever you want to say before that my first love in comedy was definitely like absurdism and one-liners I was a mm. huge huge mm. like Mitch Hedberg guy uh, and a massive Dimitri Martin fan. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure my first set, maybe there was one like sort of actual joke or bit in there, but the rest of it was all just one-liners and stuff like that, uh, very much in the style of a Hedberg or Stephen Wright or something like that, trying mm. to be a bit of a absurdist weirdo. I think that was probably my first my first love, yeah. Oh. Take us take us to the journey. What happens next? And so you did you do that? Yeah. And then you go to the final uh, nationals. Did you say? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, those ones. I think I didn't win the Vic State. I think I might have gotten a wild card from the Vic State final to the national final. Mm. It doesn't matter anyway. I just really enjoyed the experience. But I think the main takeaway was uh, spending the day with Xavier, and then uh, on the state final it was Xavier again, who's the. Um, the mentor Mm -hmm. and then for the national final it was uh harley breen and more so than doing the show what i was interested in was like talking to them and the way that they would talk about their lives and comedy and Mm -hmm. what it actually looks like to do it and they just literally stuff as simple as like oh yeah there's shows in melbourne most nights of the week and if you want to you can get up four or five times Mm -hmm. a week in melbourne and then when it's festival season, you travel to Perth and Adelaide and Sydney and Brisbane and Melbourne. You do your show all over the country. And I just didn't really know, I guess, about any of that yeah. sort of um, 
infrastructure of the comedy world in Australia and I just thought it sounded so fucking cool. (laughs) And I thought that is what I would like to do with my life. And I was also pretty... Uh, I guess not directionless because I became quite focused on this. But at school and stuff, I never really knew what I wanted to do. I was sort of interested in, sort of interested in drama, sort of interested in English. No real, you know, when they would, yeah, when they do careers day, or Mm because it was like about now that I was starting to have to think about going to uni or doing TAFE or doing whatever. I just had fucking no idea. But this thing was like the first thing. I was like, oh, that is something I would want to do and want to spend my life doing. And just the way they talked about it was so appealing to me. And I reckon that was like, all right, I'm on. And so then after that Mm -hmm. happened, uh, did the national final, finished year 12, had a gap year to like stay in a trigger and save money Mm -hmm. when traveling, blah, 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 classic 18-year-old things to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I told my parents I want to move to Melbourne um, and pursue comedy. And they were like, that's great. We would like you to have (laughs) some (laughs) other backup plan. Uh, And back then, I don't know what the deal is now, but because I was moving from Echuca, which is like three hours away from Melbourne, Mm -hmm. uh, you you can get a bunch of Centrelink or government support or whatever uh, if you move to go to uni. And so they were like, Uh. you're either going to have to go into like Mm. full-time work to Mm. be able to afford to live in Melbourne or if you study at uni, doesn't matter what you study, as long as you pick something you're Mm -hmm. semi-interested in, you'll get a bunch of help from the government Mm. and then maybe you'll end up with a degree. So that'd be good Mm -hmm. anyway. I would say that my parents were always like supportive but cautious. (laughs) They were like, go for it. I'm glad you're pursuing something you are passionate about but also have a backup plan, you know what I mean, which is good. I'm grateful for that. Uh, and so I moved and started doing an arts degree and yeah, 14th of, um, February and started uni, started doing comedy that day, did them both for six months or so, and then realized uni is going nowhere and I'm just going to end up with a whole bunch of debt. Mm. Um, and so I just, yeah, started working and doing stand up. So you dropped out? Dropped out. Um, I think technically I deferred and then about another six months later, I officially dropped out and... Yeah, we did it. I'm glad you did it, man. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Did, yeah. did your mind explode when you saw how big the comedy scene was in Melbourne? A hundred percent, yeah, a hundred percent. I couldn't believe it and I thought so lucky. And even back then it was like much, much, much smaller than it is mm. now. Um, I was, yeah, blown away at how many comedians there were and how many shows there were. Yeah. And I would say back then like if you really wanted to, max you could do was probably like four or five a week where now it's like, you know, 10 or something like that. But even that was nuts like because at this point I was pretty into listening to comedy podcasts and hearing comedians talk about comedy and stuff like that. And so you'd hear about what it's like in LA and New York or whatever Mm. and it was I knew it wasn't as big of a scene as that but in my mind it was like this is the Australian equivalent. Mm. This is crazy that it's a real scene. This is amazing. Well, it's funny because I was a massive fan of comedy growing up when I was in high school and mm-hmm. when I watched the gala, I thought that's what the Melbourne Comedy Festival was, the yeah. gala. Same. And then you <laughs> then you come to Melbourne and there's 300-plus shows yeah. the entire month. <laughs> it's crazy. It really is crazy. There's um, the depth of it I think most people don't understand. Yeah. yeah. And it's just a whole other vibe when, when you're out in the city exploring, yep. you know, comedians. Yeah. It's great fun. Yeah, really it's, fun. It's great to sit in a like enclosed space with like 30, 40 people and there's just, it's like an intimate setting. Do you, do you like intimate? Um, yeah, to- totally. I mean, there's not a gig I don't like really, um, but definitely love, yeah, there is something special about like 
there's a person on stage, there's 20, 30, 40 people mm. in here listening to them. We're all sharing one energy. We're laughing at the same times. We're responding to the same things. It's like, uh, yeah, still to this day, like 10 years later, it's a, um, it's a special feeling. Oh, okay. So while you were, so you were about 17, 18 when you made the decision to move to Melbourne, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you talk about as being asexual a lot in your, um, in your stuff. When was that part of your personality you, you were realizing? Uh, was that in Ichuka or was that in Melbourne when you got here? Um, I have a joke in my act about it, so I'll try not to just repeat the joke. Okay. <laughs> but I never, ever thought about it while I was growing up. I knew that there was some difference in my sexuality and that of my friends and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I really did assume back then that I was probably gay, but I truly never thought about it or engaged with it because I guess that whole idea was quite scary to me. It was quite a small regional town. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it. I did, ha I did have in the back of my mind like this will be something I'll explore when I move to Melbourne in mm -hmm. somewhere I guess I felt a bit um, safer or away from Home. Uh, yeah, away from home, away from people yes. I know, stuff like that. And then I I tried being gay and it was not for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the guy that I had moved from Echuca to Melbourne with yeah. uh, had the exact same thing and he is now gay and okay. is very happy and living a lovely life with his lovely husband. So we were on a similar journey, I think, where we never really explored it that much mm -hmm. when we were in Echuca, but we were like, oh, maybe this is a thing in Melbourne. And then he was like, oh, yeah, this is great. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I would say I almost put it to the back of my mind. I uh, didn't feel super comfortable thinking about sexuality or questioning it or examining it in any way. Yeah. And then I ended up in quite a, um, it was a good relationship for a while, but it turned quite sour in the end. We were together mm -hmm. for like four, nearly four years. Uh, and sex was definitely like a big issue throughout that. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just a lot of conversations about how, we weren't having enough sex or whatever, whatever. Mm. It was like arguments all the time about it. I still didn't really examine myself that much, but I could tell this is on my end. This is like a lack of interest for me. Mm. And you think so many things. I guess it's because like uh, you never hear of someone being asexual, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's pretty thing. rare. That's why I loved your show last year. It's from like a unique perspective you yeah. don't often hear about. Yeah. yeah. And I guess I never yeah i never had someone to look to to be like oh maybe that's what i am so you think it's a million other things you think like oh, i've got a, lo a libido i should be healthier whatever like yeah. maybe i just need to find the right person people have a million different solutions for you and none of them turn out, turn out to be helpful at all because you're just fucking not interested <laughs> <laughs> and so then literally the place that started was i did a bit we had broken up uh because of many reasons, but, you know, sex being one of them. Mm. And so I did a bit where I literally just said, I don't like sex. Do you guys like it? I don't like it. Yeah. And I don't even remember what the bit was back then. It was real early version. I never said asexual, never said anything like that. But I did it a few times and I could feel the audience like really um, being interested in it. Like it's out, it's so out of the norm. Yeah. yeah. And I thought I'd always uh admired and wanted to be the type of comic that talks about stuff that no one else talks mm. about um and that no one else can talk about because if it's so personal to your life then it's not a premise that you know any comedian can have access to you know what i mean and so that idea was quite um 
intoxicating to me going, oh, this is the first thing I've ever said on stage where uh, I've never seen anyone say this, you know what I mean? And that was very interesting to me and so I sort of pursued it. I gave up on doing that joke specifically on stage but I kept it in my mind and now that I was single, talked to some friends about what the relationship had been like and so on and so forth and I think that was the small like sort of first step towards being asexual which was like late 2019 um and then i would say i first started like talking about it on stage and being more open with it was when the gigs opened back up in the end of 2020 so on the tail end mm. of that first lockdown i think there was some uh i don't remember a distinct point but there was some clarity in my mind of like oh this is a thing and i'm it and it's good to talk about it for me on the inside and it's also good to talk about it for me as a comedian mm -hmm. uh Great, let's go. <laughs> I think that's what comedy is to me, and I'm a massive fan of comedy when people can sort of transform their whatever it is, pain, suffering, misery, or something that's bothering them into something that's funny. That's that's my favorite kind yeah, of comedy. Yeah, me too, me too. Yeah. And I think I saw that from my love of, you know, your um, Bamfords and your Marins mm -hmm. and your whoever mm -hmm. else is. And when I first started talking about that on stage and knowing the... <clears throat> pardon me um i guess sort of you know pain or whatever you want to call it it had caused me in the past was like oh this is an important thing and this is the thing that you hear comedians talk about all the time where they're taking some hard from, from their life mm. and making it easy by talking about it on stage i had done that maybe in like little glimpses here and there earlier but definitely uh getting to that point talking about asexuality and stuff was like yeah the big the big one of like oh this is what you hear people say that comedy yeah. is meant to be <laughs> yes. what was do you, can you pinpoint or do you remember any funny questions or stereotypes <laughs> about being asexual that people must have thrown at you? Maybe your peers or maybe your family. It definitely was funny. Uh, <laughs> peers definitely had some questions about it and stuff because of the gap and also just because I wasn't super open about it yeah. uh, in general, but also because of the COVID lockdown that had happened. So it's sort of stuff I'd like thought about and worked on in private and then all of a sudden the gigs were back on and you're seeing all these comedians that you've not seen or spoken yeah. to for the last six months or whatever yeah. it was mm -hmm. and i'm up on stage talking about being asexual and they're like what <laughs> what's this <laughs> you you what went into the lockdown exactly? normal i thought and now <laughs> definitely some people like what does it mean um some people super lovely super uh friendly and accepting <laughs> i remember the great comedian scout boxall said to me uh, welcome to the Rainbow Alliance, which is like <laughs> very nice yeah. sense of it, but just a hilarious sentence to say. Let's say it again. Welcome to the Rainbow Alliance. Wow. So smart. So smart. So smart. <laughs> and just like a bizarre thing to say. Yeah. Um, yeah, people to this day are quite interested in whether or not I'm keen on like dating at all. They're like, mm. well, do you think you'll have a partner or relationships in the future? And the answer is like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> you don't think about it? I don't think about it, which I know is crazy. Uh, if I had to guess, I would say no, mm. but I'm totally aware that, that that could easily change. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, it's no longer like a driving force in my life. And then like someone that I hadn't seen recently, uh, I want to say I hadn't seen him for maybe a year or something like that. I hadn't spoken to them probably for a year. And it's not like we have a super... Um, close relationship or whatever anyway but we're good friends and we we're catching up and they're like so what are you are you dating are you seeing people and i was just like i was so blown away by the question because i was like oh no and 
I'm not even fucking thinking about it. Yeah. And uh, maybe that's wrong or whatever, but it's never crosses my mind at the moment. And if it does oh. in the future, great. But right now. Does that relieve a lot of stress when that's not at the forefront of your mind? Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. And I mean, I talked about it a little bit in the show last year, but it's also like there is some definite uh, societal pressure that tells you that having a relationship is important mm -hmm. to yeah. being a full mm -hmm. uh, whole person. Yeah. And so when you feel like you're not interested in that, you think, well, I'm broken in some way yeah. <laughs> and I'm not fitting into uh, what most people think is a good idea of a person, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's a lot to work through, but, um, yeah, I feel pretty pretty comfortable with it all, I would say. Mm. But people are interested in that. People are interested in, like, people, I think one... Uh, incorrect assumption people have about asexuals um, and maybe this applies to some people but it doesn't apply to me they assume I'm like disgusted or upset by sex and they don't mm. want to like talk about sex in front of me or around me or anything like that and I'm like <laughs> yeah. no I don't care it's not that I like the the quickest way to say it on stage and the funniest way is to say I don't like it just because that's a very direct thing to say you know what I mean but it's more just like I don't care about it it doesn't occur to me it doesn't matter to me and so when people will sometimes try to shield their conversations from me they'll be like oh sorry we shouldn't talk about it. I'm like no I don't I'm not a baby <laughs> I'm not like, get offended <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> that's definitely one weird sort of um, assumption that people have yeah yeah. Talking about something Dan said along the along the lines what Dan said that when you were doing a gig, so it's like sort of like a coming out or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Did that sort of relieve your pressure a little bit? Did you feel good? Yeah, totally, totally. And this is probably something I should talk to a therapist about <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> but I think most people in my life, not all, there's some people who I like, yeah, quote unquote, came out to uh, off stage. But most people in my life would say found out from seeing me just talk about it on stage. Wow. And for whatever reason, there's just something I'm way more comfortable doing it like that. And I'm way more comfortable. I think like we were saying before, the stage is a place to like talk about things that are difficult and mm. maybe it's not the healthiest <laughs> approach to have. Maybe it would be better to do this stuff off stage. But for me, I felt comfortable doing it and that felt right to me at the time. So I thought I'm just going to talk about it on stage and mm. people can see it and, you know, accept it as they will. That's beautiful, man. Yeah. Very nice. I had a very interesting question for you. I was sitting down. I was like, man, I want to genuinely wanted to ask you something. I said then as a straight guy, mm -hmm. I have, well, not a lot, most, but not a lot. Oh, my thoughts are about sex and women. <laughs> and if someone who's asexual mm -hmm. doesn't have any thoughts, then bro, what the fuck are you thinking? <laughs> what the fuck do you think? There's so much space in your head. That is a great question. That is a <laughs> so great question. So much space in your head. Like, you're free, bro. <laughs> like, I am free. That is, I would say, a like, uh, prevailing sense I mean, that I there's have. so much space in your head. You're thinking about, like, minus, minuscus. <laughs> Tiniest things. I'm finding some other bullshit to stress about and fixate on, don't you worry. But you do hear that stat of like what the straight men think about sex like seven times a minute well, whatever or whatever it is, it is yeah. which seems crazy, but a lot. And it does seem to occupy most of most people's brain space, which is totally fine. It's yeah. an important thing to you, which is part of what the show is about last year as well. Like mm. If it's important to you, it's important to you. You don't mm. have to question why. Um, what do I think about? I don't know. I would say I'm a real overthinker. I'm a stressor. Mm. I'm a, uh, a busy guy, but in a way that I can't complain about because I like bring it all upon myself. Mm. Like my schedule, especially the last couple of months is just insane. But 
it's been like that for years and I don't change it. So a part of me is like, well, I think this is just how I do like to live in a way mm-hmm. <laughs> by being busy and filling up my time and my brain with, yeah, all sorts of other bullshit. You get super productive. It's like a superpower now. <laughs> That's what people say, yeah. There were definitely a lot of comics who, when I started talking about it on stage, they were like, I'm so jealous, man. If I didn't care about sex, then I could work so much harder. <laughs> no, doubt, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Um, um, so I just want to understand that I think as you're growing up, there's so much around you where you grow up in a city or where you grow up mm-hmm. influences you so much. How was growing up in Echuca like? What was the scene? I think good. I think looking back, it's like I would never want to live there, but I'm very happy to have grown up there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think obviously it could be a bit more, um, you know, open-minded or whatever and maybe there. Uh, other towns I would have grown up in that I would have felt more comfortable exploring the idea of asexuality or whatever earlier on and maybe that would have been good for me but it just wasn't the case and like I said I never was out or talking about any of this stuff back then Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess I felt the the uh, discomfort of having to obscure it a little bit, mm-hmm. but not that much. It's not like there was ever any sort of hatred or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think I did a good mm-hmm. job of hiding anything strange about me and fitting in with all my friends who, I mean, most of them I still love and see mm-hmm. every now and then. Um, yeah, I suppose it could definitely, like most regional um, towns, could be more open-minded, open-minded. and chill. Mm-hmm. But in general, pretty nice. I mean, don't get me wrong, I was like a very... Uh, miserable, angsty teen who was like, you know, full of uh, <laughs> full of uh, bad feelings and loved pop punk and wanted to <laughs> scream about my parents at school and whatever. But I don't think any more than this what is standard with you know being a teenager. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Definitely was jealous of uh, people who grew up in the city and the idea of like moving to Melbourne or any big city was like super um, appealing to me mm-hmm. from like quite a young age. But then. I've thought about this as well. I'm almost grateful that I didn't grow up in Melbourne because it did mean that once I moved and I had decided in my head, oh, I really want to do stand up in Melbourne. It was like, well, yeah, fucking do it. <laughs> like, yeah. this is why you're here. You're just in, you don't even know anyone. And it's led me to a place which maybe it's also unhealthy, but like all my friends and everyone is mm. comedians because it's the only people I ever knew you're when I moved to Melbourne. To it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, the reason for me living here. So everyone I knew in those first couple of years especially was a comedian or comedy related somehow. I always like to ask this question to people. Like what was your favorite childhood memory? Like some interesting stories from uh, when you were growing up. Oh, great question. Um, I loved so much. We grew up um, in the east of Chico right across the road from an oval and mm. many, many fond memories of just fucking around on the oval with my brother or my friend Keegan who lived around the corner playing cricket, playing footy, shooting fireworks in the air, shooting bow and arrows at the footy posts, <laughs> <laughs> just doing all sorts of <laughs> crazy bullshit. Yeah. Uh, Teenager stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and we would go, not every year, but every couple of years, we'd go on a little family holiday to Eden, which is like on the south coast of New South Wales. Mm-hmm. I think that like a lot of my core memories from being a child and some of my, definitely my fondest memories are like just swimming in the beach at Eden, eating fish and chips at Eden, all that sort mm. of shit. It was great. It was great. Oh. I saw on the, I was looking through your profile. Mm. I saw that you also performed in uh, Ireland and uh, internationally as well. Yeah, yeah. No Ireland, but I have done the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Scotland for the last oh, Sorry, couple. Yes. Well, not for the last couple of years, but last year and then pre-COVID did 2018 uh, and 19 there as well. Yeah. 
That's oh. quite a big step for a comedian as well yeah. to go, go over there as well. Yeah, it's a real like sort of um, uh, rites of passage or coming of age yeah. thing that people talk about for comedians or whatever. Mm. Um, yeah, I fucking love it over there, man. <laughs> you guys <laughs> as comedy nuts would go crazy for it. Yeah. It's the best. It's so good. What 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 is it like going there with as someone who doesn't have a big profile? Is mm-hmm. it is it hard? Um, <laughs> I'm going to sound maybe uh, confident or cocky and I don't want to make it sound easy to other comedians, but I've never had that difficult of a time there. Uh, and that is in part due to the there are many great structures set up to help younger, less um, less famous comedians, but also just like I knew people had done it before and it helped to have a plan. Yeah. So uh, Aidan Jones, the wonderful comedian, um, used to live in the UK and had been to it a couple of times mm. through that. And he had started doing a thing called the Free Fringe. So in Edinburgh, there's like the main Edinburgh Fringe and they run a whole bunch of venues. Um, In particular, there's like sort of four big um, groups of venues where like, you know, an owner will own 40 different rooms or whatever Mm -hmm. and they all fit under that umbrella. And all those rooms are very uh, expensive (laughs) to hire and quite you know, they come with some expectation. If you end up doing a show in those rooms, it's a lot of money to try to make back. The big thing that people say about doing those rooms is like, if you can break even, you've had a fucking great season. I know people have done them and the financial stress of it just drives them absolutely insane. Mm. And so along with that, the benefit of it, I suppose, is that if you're in one of those bigger venues, you're more likely to get uh, agents, people who book TV shows, media people mm-hmm. in comedy industry people yeah. mm-hmm. will only come and see your show if you're in one of the big paid venues or whatever um i don't think it's any sort of shady dealings i just think it's there's so many fucking shows in edinburgh there's you've got to yeah. split up your time somehow mm-hmm. right and so that existed for like 20 30 years or something in the fringe and then in about the late 90s early 2000s somebody started the free fringe of which now, there are now like two things because all things have to compete with each other yeah. apparently in the arts uh which is just makes it so much more accessible for comedians who don't necessarily have a heap of cash to spend mm-hmm. or don't have a profile that they can rely on to bring that cash back in um so for that they the one that we do is called laughing horse free fringe and they run about i want to say like 15 different venues all around the town um and so you just apply to them and if you get the room through them you pay the fringe registration which Mm. every show pays which is about 500 bucks or whatever and then you pay a once-off room hire fee which is like 200 australian dollars and then you get the room for the month as compared to about 10,000 or more Australian dollars that you would be paying in one of the other ones. So it really lowers the barrier to entry and lowers your like risk. And then there's still obviously flights and accommodation and everything on top of that. Um, But it makes it so much easier and so much more palatable to go over there, right? And so Taco had done that. Taco is Aiden Jones. (laughs) I'm not not being racist (laughs) to him. That's his actual nickname. He called his show that. He used to go by that on stage. (laughs) Um, He had done that and he had told me and... Peter Jones and Adam Knox in specific about it. And we were quite interested in the idea of going. So we said, we might want to try to do this in 2018. What do you think? He said, yep, apply for the Laughing Horse Free Fringe. uh, See what you can do. And he said, a good way to do it would be just go there. If you get a show, great. But if not, just go over anyway, try to do a bunch of spots, see a bunch of shows and just like see what it's like. Try to understand it with your Mm. feet on the ground, Mm. which is the best advice I ever got because Mm. you truly can't describe... 
uh, Edinburgh, the scale of it or the vibe of it, unless you've been there. Like mm. imagine a physical place about as big as, I guess about the Melbourne CBD or so, like yeah. the sort mm-hmm. of grid, the grid in the middle of Melbourne. Um, but it's beautiful and old and medieval and it's full mm-hmm. of castles and shit mm-hmm. like that, n- yeah. number one. And almost every single space in the whole city is dedicated to having a show in there. Every The back room of every bar, every cafe, every little theatre, every mm-hmm. weird music venue, everywhere has some show. And then on top of that, there's these huge hubs set up all throughout the city to like, oh, here's a bunch of bars out on the street because it's the fringe and you can have a drink here and then go see shows in nearby venues, whatever, whatever. And every single person that you see on the street, maybe with a tiny amount of exceptions, is there to be a part of the fringe in some way, to either have a show and do a show or just to see stuff. Um, It's a huge, huge tourist attraction. I think the numbers that people always give is that um, Edinburgh has a population of 600,000 and then during the fringe, it swells to like two million. Like wow. it's a crazy, crazy thing. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, and you'll meet people and talk to people who, the example I always think of this year, just gone. I met this nice couple. To me, they were like, without seeming rude, they were like the most normie people on <laughs> earth. He like worked in IT. She was like some middle management job. They both lived in sort of like the Midlands of England. They were maybe in about their early 30s or so. Nice young couple, but incredibly normal people and I got talking to them and they were like yeah we're just here for the fringe I was like oh cool how long are you here for and they're like oh we've just come up for like five days and I was like oh cool you're seeing shows they're like yeah we've seen like four or five shows every day and it's like that is just so common I guess culturally comedy is a lot um more popular in the UK Mm -hmm. so that helps but just in general the fringe as a thing is like very important to people and so many people take part in it where in Melbourne the festival is huge and a lot of people come and see yeah. shows but I reckon if you stop somebody on the street and said mm. do you know the comedy festival is on number one I think there'd be a fair chunk that don't yeah. and if you said have you seen any shows maybe people would say one or two but people don't see heaps and heaps of stuff you know mm-hmm. what I mean so it's just a huge 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 unbelievably massive like cultural event more percent of the population is into comedy yeah totally totally and the population's bigger as well so the number is bigger Mm, yeah it's it's massive it's super popular and it's really cool that sort of in turn makes it a little bit easier to go there and get people to come to your shows Mm. and so that first year 2018 it was like we didn't make money but we just about broke even off the show that we did and then we went back knowing the deal so went back in 2019 did that show i did a solo show uh, I hosted this gong show, this silly like sort of panel show they used to do, and then we also ran all together a um, like a late night variety show or whatever. <laughs> and between all four of those shows, like made money, paid for all the flights to come, everything like that, yeah. made a bit of profit on top. Went back in twenty twenty, what was last year? Two did a similar mm-hmm. thing. We'll go back this year and hopefully do it. That's good. Yeah. We should look for that, man. Thanks, man. I'm excited. I'm nervous. We just <laughs> locked in our accommodation the other day. Beautiful. <laughs> when did you gain your confidence as a comedian? How, how old were you into comedy Ooh. before you got that confidence? <laughs> it's a tough thing with comedy because I feel like sometimes it, I guess this is one of my favourite things about it and is why I'll probably be addicted to it forever, but it feels like you just never stop 
uh, improving and mm. getting better and moving forward in your ideas and your confidence and your delivery and everything. So it's like you can look back on something you did a month ago and be like, man, I'm so much better than I was back then. Yeah. But I feel like probably about like 2019 I sort of like felt properly confident and like I could I think I was making like a reasonable amount of money and stuff. I was like, oh, this is something I can actually do, mm. which is like six years in, you know. And it's not like I felt like a huge piece of shit. I always thought like, oh, I'm okay. I'm working hard at this. This is hard. And sometimes I bomb it, sometimes not. But that was, a, I think, the first, that comedy festival in particular, 2019, was when I'm like, oh, this is something I do and yeah. it usually goes all right and I'll be okay. But then it's only gotten more so since then. So, yeah. Are there moments you still get nervous or have, has that disappeared as, as well? Mm, for stand-up itself, uh, it has mostly disappeared yeah. in almost a worrying way, but also in a way that when you do get nervous, it's like, oh, this is kind of fun. Yeah. This is nice to be nervous about a thing again. And it does still happen. And that's the great thing about like, I still try to do a heap of gigs every week. You'll always run across some scenario, whether or not it's like a big crowd or an annoying person in the yeah. front or whatever, um, attention in the room. There's always like some scenario you'll run across that's like, oh, I, how do I deal with this? What am I going to do? But, you know, it's more uh, the nerves are more exciting now, I guess, where mm. it used to be very mm. scary. Because I believe when you're doing something new, mm. there's a part of your, well, you call it imposter syndrome or whatever you want to call it, but there's a part of you that is not wanting to accept that you're actually doing that. Yeah, yeah, right? true. You're like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we do this podcast and when we go back to work, it's like, the fuck? <laughs> it's, so, it's just so weird because there's a personality shift in your head. You're mm -hmm. like, what am I doing actually? Totally, and I'm sure it like, you know, releases all adrenaline and dopamine and whatever else. Yeah. It's like, yeah, look at this new experience yeah. you're having and your body like knows it and feels mm. it. Mm. Do you, was it hard for you to find your style or did you just, were you just natural at it? Um, one thing that and was, what is your style <laughs> according to you? People, it's, I always feel so bad. I should develop some answer to that question, but I just never <laughs> think of anything to say that's succinct and correct. Um, I guess, yeah, like Dan said, it's pretty, it's personal stories. Mm. It's pretty um, silly at times and stuff like that. But yeah, just it's my life and it's up on stage. That so was definitely like the most appealing type of comedy to me uh, when I was younger. And I've noticed as I've gotten older, it's the most appealing type of any art to me at all. Like whether it's film or music or painting or whatever it is, you want to see somebody's like heart and you want to see some. Mm. Oh. you want to see a, a human being up there you mm. know what i mean and i have an appreciation of all sorts of comedy if somebody is just doing like surface level one-liners i can definitely recognize yeah. like oh that's funny and they've done a good job but the things that yeah really really um i respond to are that like yeah somebody's showing themselves yeah. and it doesn't always have to be like flagellating or you know particularly difficult but when somebody's like being an authentic human being there's like i guess it's it's built in to respond there's to that some sort of, shit. of trust that you build as well that yeah totally that, oh yeah that person's being honest with us yeah and that's so true to understand and appreciate their journey and you're like that was very funny yeah 100 percent. yeah the being honest with people is um yeah you respond to that just on a human level i suppose did you, did you feel any difference between the response of audience here mm -hmm. in Melbourne versus back at the Fringe? What What's the 
Like because I I I believe that masses have a different psychology. Every place mm-hmm. has a different psychology. What do you think? Like yeah, n- no, hundred percent. Yeah, definitely. It's hard to um put it into words or define it specifically about Edinburgh, especially because like like I said, it's this huge tourist destination, and it's people mm-hmm. from all over Europe. So. It's always a funny gag to in Edinburgh be like, hey, give us a cheer if you're Scottish. And almost nobody in there is Scottish. Because <laughs> wow. I think a lot of people who actually live in Edinburgh would yeah. understandably hate the festival yeah. and be like, this has taken over my city yeah. for the month. Yeah. And I think a lot of them leave or a lot of them avoid it or whatever. So it's always people from mostly England and Ireland yeah. and stuff like that, Wales. And then a lot of continental Europe and stuff as well. So you can never put your finger on like, oh, this is how... English people respond to it, but this is how Scottish people respond to it. But it's mm. definitely different. And the main difference is uh, there's just this built-in interest at you being Australian, mm. which every time I go, I forget is yeah. going to happen. And then you get on stage and start speaking and you can tell people are a bit more tuned in yeah, yeah. and they want you to talk about, oh, you're from Australia, what's that like? And well, you've got an edge that you don't have here. <laughs> exactly. And they're like, what does an Australian yeah. think about the UK? Yeah, and shit like yeah. that. Where on here, it's just <laughs> on stage here, it's more just you're like... You're exotic there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. You're like, all right, got to get these people's interest straight away. But with them, it's like, oh, an Australian guy, how cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I think also, not to be too cynical, but definitely helps our like um, tickets sales and stuff like that because yeah. we put on the poster like it's not like we sell it as like oh the bloody Aussie show down under <laughs> on her, you know? but we are just like three Australian stand-up comedians yeah. blah 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 and I think people see that and go yeah. oh yeah cool I'll see some Australian stand-up yeah. comedians yeah cool. but yeah there's definitely an interest in that and I think um uh like we said before comedy is much more popular in the UK mm. and so Definitely it feels like audiences, not all the time over there, but uh, a lot of the time over there feel like they're a bit more comedy savvy mm-hmm. um, and they, yeah, they sort of... Have a deeper understanding of comedy? Deeper understanding of comedy. Mm-hmm. You see it in how they respond to you, like they definitely can listen more and understand more jokes and types of jokes. Not to say Australian audiences are not like that or whatever, but you just notice it more over there. Mm-hmm. And especially with weird alternative um fucking around strange comedy they're like understand that that is a thing and this is a style and Mm -hmm. we're here to watch it and enjoy it where i feel like there's not really that appreciation in australia just yet of sort of more absurdist type stuff do you like would you well what's your favorite place to perform do you prefer performing at home or when you're outside Great question. Like actual venue or country or any Anything. any of the above? Let's, start, let's do a venue first. Let's do a venue. Let's do a venue in Australia. Venue in Australia, I would say probably it's got to be Comedy Republic in mm. the city of Melbourne. It's yeah. just like yeah. such a great venue uh, and I think it's been like the best thing to happen to comedy in Melbourne yeah. in forever. It's a great thing. Uh, it's a really, really beautiful club and I'm lucky enough where they book me a fair bit and it's definitely like uh i get quite in my head about this but i guess this is a form of nerves it doesn't express itself as you know straight up nervousness how you might expect but i definitely like notice if i'm at a venue i've never been at before and if i'm overseas i'm like performing in a country i haven't before or whatever the first time at something i feel way more uncomfortable and i'm like mm-hmm. oh, i'm gonna probably do a worse job because i'll be less comfortable on stage where republic i have the total opposite i know that i have like the backing of the people who run it. And I know mm. I've been on that stage like hundreds of times already. So there's this built-in comfort of like, I've been here before. <laughs> also that audience that go to the Comedy Republic mm-hmm. are there for comedy. Yeah. Whereas they're just yeah. not wandering into a pub somewhere and, yeah. oh, the, oh, there's a comedy show <laughs> on. Let's just 
That, you know, see what this is all about. It really, yeah. really helps. And it, there's plenty of other good shows in Melbourne that are like that, but definitely for years and years when you first start doing comedy, so many of the shows are like that yeah. where it's like, hey, we've chucked a mic in the corner of the pub. Yeah. Somebody's going to walk on stage and that's when everybody who's here will find out that there's comedy yeah. on <laughs> and just try to win them over because they assume that it's going to suck because it's just been shoved in front of them for free and they are against you straight away because yeah. you're like you're disrupting my my dinner and yeah. my chat with my friend which <laughs> totally understandable yeah. 100% fine uh but yeah having people who have paid to see comedy and are at a very professional mm. seeming good comedy venue comedy public is great for that definitely feel a lot of comfort there and the other one would be silly little club voltaire which is like one of the great oddities of melbourne comedy um mm. in north melbourne just a strange little like burlesque theater um which has for years now hosted different comedy shows there's been like a sunday there regularly uh there's been a friday there for the last few years and stuff like that and there's always you know whatever other stuff happening there but that as a venue it's you know we all have a lot of love for voltaire but you wouldn't say it's the most professional or glamorous place in the world you know what i mean but by way of it having been around for so long and me having performed there so many times i just have this built-in love for it and the comfort is definitely huge there like mm. i don't think i ever feel less nervous than when i'm on stage or about to go on stage at club voltaire it's like this is something i've done god i wonder if it's a thousand times yet but at very least hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times at club voltaire mm. <laughs> yeah and you run your own comedy room too yes at the catfish not that it's not great to perform there yeah. but i don't know for some reason it just doesn't have that same um that same sense for me but yeah catfish comedy every tuesday if you're around yeah. in melbourne how hard melbourne. is that to to put on a comedy room each and every week um luckily it has become easier and easier it's sort of gotten more like built into my you know just my routine of the week or whatever mm. um but definitely it's hard and annoying sometimes <laughs> and it kind of sucks uh but in general i i love it and i love the catfish and i also like that um for a long time before comedy republic it was sort of one of the better rooms to be able to do mm. in melbourne and is still i guess on the upper end but now that there's that sweet sweet republic yeah. that's like more the goal but um it was very cool and I felt lucky to be able to give people like, hey, here's a room where, yeah, there's 50 or so people who have paid to see a show and there's a normal stage with lights and a microphone yeah. and everything, so enjoy. So it's like can be pretty hard and annoying sometimes, uh, getting easier through time, but I really do like it. Hmm. Well, since we're back at that, what was your favourite um, venue internationally? Edinburgh, maybe? Oh, yeah, great question. There is a space upstairs uh, in Edinburgh. That's the other thing about um, so many of these spaces, especially the Free Fringe. Love the Free Fringe so much. Thank you for giving us the venues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and I don't think they would have a problem with me saying this. Like I said, a lot of them are crammed into these weird little back yeah. rooms, places that there wouldn't only be a comedy or any sort of show at all, but they've just like literally hired a stage and a light and chucked it in this room. Mm -hmm. So there's some pretty fucking shady looking places I, I, I ask this question because i wanted to understand if from a comedian's pov mm -hmm. what is it about an a, a venue that changes how you perform i'm just like i'm very curious about that oh That's yeah yeah this question um the stereotypically the things that a comedian loves in a room which are all pretty much um true is that you want the audience to be spread out 
not long ways, ideally mm. like in a square or like sideways, but a room comedy that... Comedy Republic it, is like in a semicircle. Exactly, I, I yeah. Like that. yeah. And the good, Basement yeah. Comedy Club, which just reopened this week after renovations, is now like that, where that used mm. to be long. Yeah. Um, and these things don't make a huge, huge difference, but, it, you know, the small 1% is like add up to mm. making something a good room. Um, so, yeah, like wide like that, a low ceiling is always good. Mm-hmm. Um Low ceiling, and the reason for that, and you can also do this with good soundproofing and just good acoustics in, in general, is because the laughter like really stays in. The sound of it doesn't mm, escape up yeah. into the air or whatever, which is always what's so shit about occasionally you do gigs outside mm, uh, yeah. in like an open air setting and you can see people laughing a bunch, but the sound, it feels it like you're bombing horrendously yeah, because yeah. you're like, ha-ha, and then there's just nothing where that like uh, it's good auditorily but also i think psychologically for the audience it's like man there's big laughs happening all the time in here this is great um you want it to be i think dark uh i think if there's too much light on the audience they start to feel a bit Mm self-conscious and i think people Mm -hmm. come to comedy to like Mm. they usually don't want the attention like people terrified of sitting in the front row and people scared of being talked to and stuff like that they want to just hide away and people in general i think like psychologically don't love having a big old laugh and having someone see them, you know what I mean? So if they can feel like there's nobody watching them, uh, that will make people laugh harder. And then the simple stuff of just like, you know, a mic that works easy and lights and stuff like that. But I think those are the main big ones. Spread out sort of wider audience, low ceiling and, and, uh, yeah, in the dark. That's very interesting that you said (laughs) that about dark, like people sitting in the dark because I I, I agree to that. Mm. Do you... Do you think about that? Do you break down comedy, your performance into a very statistic or not statistic, but like a, in an analytical form? Do you do that? Um, every now and then. And with stuff like that, it's I find more so it's like sort of in the back of your head at all times. So It is always, yes. Yeah. And yeah. so you, you'll turn up to a gig and say everything's not like that. There's still every chance it will be good and that it'd be able to be mm. sweet or whatever. But if you turn up and things are right about it, it just feels like this will be easier or more likely to go well. You know what I mean? I wouldn't say I approach it from a super analytical standpoint, but you carry that stuff around with you all the time. All the time. And even weird little, I don't, uh, almost shouldn't even bring it up because I don't even know how to articulate the what I'm talking about perfectly, but weird little reads you can make on the crowd and the energy in a room. And I guess now I've been doing it so long, like, you know, at the start of a show, and this doesn't happen on every show, but someone will jump on either the microphone or like a microphone at the back of the room and be like, hey, guys, who's ready for a big night of comedy? Give it up for your MC, blah, 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 blah. Just like introducing the MC. It feels like now at that point you can get a read on the audience yes. from how much or how little energy they yeah. give or what type of clapping they're doing and shit like that. It's like these weird small things <laughs> that you just become better and better at picking up on and being like, well, the show's a bit like this and this section of the room's like this and this person's a bit chatty, whatever. Just yeah. like, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm super hyper aware of it in the front of my mind, but it's stuff that's definitely like, yeah, yeah. it's built in. I understand that because right now, even right now, I have like three cylinders of my head just thinking about, oh, is it recording? Mm. Or is the camera here? I'm not there. <laughs> it's a bunch of things as well. Yeah. And that's, I think I said it uh, maybe last time, Josh Earl and Sammy Shabri, that I believe that comedy in any art form 
is the has the quickest feedback. Mm, totally, it's such, totally. So quick that you can tell that jokes are landing. You can't <laughs> tell the jokes are you're bombing. It's very quick. Mm, big time. And do you reckon? Do you think? Do you have that going on at the back of your head? Are you looking at people's reaction? Constantly? Yeah. Or you're just in your own world and just telling stories, or <laughs> making you know? No, it's definitely very. Um, super super reliant so on people's analyze. reactions mm. and you analyze it as it's mm. going and yeah i guess it's the longer you do it the more read you can get from the crowd and stuff mm. and sometimes if you say a line it doesn't get much of a laugh uh you'll make the decision to you know dive into it a bit or take that as uh, instant feedback to maybe talk to the crowd or do something else or whatever mm. and then there's some other like slightly different energy that you can have in a crowd where if stuff isn't getting a laugh, you're like, well, the answer is to push on. This crowd would not respond positively if I was to go in a different direction. Just push on, be confident in the material, get to like the last big couple of punchlines or whatever, mm. and then go from there. So it's definitely like moment by moment, but you're always, always taking into account like how the audience is responding and how you think they will respond. Definitely like say you do a slightly darker joke early and they don't like that and you have in the back of your mind like, well, I was going to do that other dark thing later mm. or like dirty, maybe another comedian's been dirty and they didn't like that and you're like, well, I'll cut this stuff about the cum or whatever, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's definitely a lot of like, for me anyway, like background processing of like, yeah, reading them. In terms of audience, well, again, some things work, some things don't. Uh, you, can't, you can't always be 100% sure. But do you think when your stuff's not working, mm -hmm. let's say hypothetically. <laughs> it happens, don't you worry. <laughs> and do you feel that you perform better when the stakes are higher or do you perform better as, a, as an individual when you're very comfortable and the crowd's happy, they're sort of like semi-drunk and they're having fun, they're all loose. Do yeah. you think you perform better when the stakes are higher or when you are comfortable? That's a great that's a great question. I think it's a little bit of a split. I think in general, most of the time I'd say I perform better when everyone's feeling pretty chill and it's comfortable and you have a sense already, this will be not an easy gig, no gig's easy, I don't think, but like this will be relatively straightforward. Everyone's having a good time already. I'll get on there, I'll have a good time, that'll be fun. Mm. But then every now and then I had this pardon me, I'm all full of burps. Um had this just this week gone at the Rochi, which is a lovely room in Fitzroy. Mm. Um it was a bit, they were a nice crowd, but the show's like outdoors there now. So the thing we were saying about the mm. laughter escaping, it's open air and there are a lot of lights on and stuff like that. So they're all lit up. There's like a lot of things going against it. And then the other comics were like, they were doing pretty good, but they were also like a lot newer comedians than me. And they just felt a little bit overwhelmed by the situation. And it's like in a big open sort of uh, beer garden courtyard. And so if someone decides to not pay attention to you and talk to their friend, there's not much you can do because it's like, well, they're five metres away and they're sitting behind a pole and they're just in the beer garden. Like, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? So it was yeah. definitely like people were yelling out a little bit. It wasn't like mean heckly and people were still mostly going okay. But in a situation like that where it's like, yeah, the stakes are higher, this is a little bit, little bit more difficult, I definitely approached it as like, all right, I'm going to fucking fucking do this one real yes. good yeah, <laughs> this yeah, is gonna yeah. be real good i'm gonna do all the little all my little things i'm gonna really focus i'm gonna be present i'm gonna do funny crowd work i'm gonna engage people and then i'm gonna tell material it's gonna work and it, it worked out great i don't mean to brag but i had a good set and i was super happy with it and that is the most satisfying type of set you can have better than mm. a 
what's one that I can think of? Like uh, Splendor in the Grass or something. The Thursday night there, it's like 600 people in a tent. They're all super excited to be at the festival. They're all super pumped to watch some comedy. Mm-hmm. You go out there, you do your 10 minutes of gold material and you have a six set, right? Mm-hmm. That feels good. Does not feel as good as like uh, sort of cowboying, what's the word I'm thinking of? Lassoing like, <laughs> you know, 20 drunk people in a weird beer garden yeah. in Fitzroy and mm-hmm. making them pay attention to you and invest in you and laugh at you. That is like the most satisfying feeling when a crowd's a bit disinterested or they don't like the show or whatever and then you can Sense win them over. It's like, yeah, totally, mm. totally. Do you like to pr- work around with crowd? Oh, yeah, I love it. <laughs> people who are not paying attention to you? Yeah, I come and go with it a little bit. Um, I definitely... I'm determined not to be like a mean roast crowd work comedian. Mm. I think it's like, I think it's really funny, but so I think a lot of people do it. I think in general, yeah. like you guys have seen me, you would know it's not necessarily the relationship I have with my audience. I want mm. to, you know, you can make them feel good. Yeah. yeah. Make them feel good. And I want them to like me and I want to like them. Like ideally you can walk away from a show and be like, man, we all fucking got along. And sometimes you have to be a little bit roasty and mean or whatever, especially as if you're emceeing or something like that yeah. to try to calm people down or get them to pay attention. Um, but in general, I love, I love talking to the crowd so much. I love it. Well, I, I believe that comedians are naturally very quick at thinking, but do you reckon that's your style as well? Like if someone's like heckling you, you're very quick at, uh, com- uh, with comebacks i try to be i try to be so you know it's sometimes you give it a crack and you say something that doesn't make sense <laughs> it works, it doesn't <laughs> or isn't funny or yeah. it's just dumb as shit but then sometimes you just happen to like this perfect comeback enters your mind or some perfect line to say to somebody mm. so it's definitely still hit and miss um but i love it and do try to like I guess as much as you can like practice it or whatever like pete and i in edinburgh last year one of the shows we did was that was it 11 or mid? I think it was midnight. Yeah, it was midnight every night uh, upstairs at a great venue called The Counting House in a little uh, room called The Attic, which is like about a, they call it a 40-seater, but if you had 40 people in there, you'd want to fucking die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's like comfortably a 30-seater and ideally like a 25 to 20-seater. Yeah. Um, but we'd like get varying between five and 30 people in there every night or whatever and we would try the audience wasn't aware of it but we would try to not do any material if it felt like we had to mm. we would jump into it to try to win people back or whatever but we'd each try to do 25 minutes of stand-up of just talking to people and it doesn't always have to be oh what do you do for a living what's your name what did you do today or whatever like actual questions or whatever mm. but just if someone gives you some answer and you can take that and run with it or maybe if it leads into some bit that you do have, it was like, do that. That was mm-hmm. so fun. It's very smart, yeah. And then I felt like I came back from that like extra good, at extra sharp, at, you know, quick on stage mm. for a while and then it sort of faded away. But doing that every night for 25 minutes was like super difficult but super rewarding as well. You learn so much about yourself. People. Totally, yeah. yeah. And it was cool to have me and Pete like – you know, he started, I think, like two months before me or something like that. But most of our comedy journeys have been side by side. Uh, and he lives in the UK now, unfortunately. Yeah. But fortunately for him, I think he's having a great time. But it was cool. That was like our last month together. And it was like every night let's get together yeah. and do this weird, stupid, silly show and like push each other one more time, you know. Oh. Mm. Talking about shows, you have your own podcasts as well. Mm-hmm. I do. How's that going for you? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. One of them's on break at the moment, so I guess you'd say that's not going good. <laughs> but that's more of just a life decision. That was Alex Ward and I had a show called The Nay Show, yeah. which we love doing, but 
we just realized that we were both so busy that the only times we ever record, the only times we ever hung out were when we were recording a podcast and we we're like, mm. that seems unhealthy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put our friendship first and, <laughs> you know, the podcast can wait for a while. Let's just hang out and go for dinner and yeah. have a drink or whatever. And that has been great. Uh, and then I've got the podcast with Peter Jones uh, and Adam Knox, who are both very funny, called Who's Spooky, which is awesome, man. And it's been like something I never expected uh, would happen in my life and has helped me like, you know, make a living from just comedy or comedy related things or whatever. Uh, cause it has Patreon and it's not like it makes heaps of cash, but it makes a bit pays a fair chunk of the rent each month or whatever. And it's like, damn, this is fucking cool, man. I did not expect this. It's like, yeah, I guess looking back at 10 years ago, I got so weird and sentimental and nostalgic because of that 10 year yeah. mark. Cause like you start to think about the journey and the whatever, yeah, whatever. Time, um, but definitely around then I was like, man, if I had, 10 years ago, I never would have thought that this would um, be my life. I mean, podcasts that make some money and do stand-up all the time, do some radio stuff, and, yeah, it's cool. It's I really love doing the potty and how it fits into my life. What Do you th- do you like the aspect that podcasts are long format mm. um, and you can talk and explore about one specific topic, which we're doing? Mm. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, definitely. And I think people, I don't know, I think anyway that people want it like – if you see a stand up on stage and they're doing the act, which is it can be as personal or open or whatever, uh, but it is still the act. And then you get to hear somebody talk in a more, I guess, authentic or relaxed way off stage mm. in a podcast. I think people love seeing that side of people. It's the behind the scenes that you don't get to see as an audience. Totally, as well. yeah. 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 I think people really like that. Like, oh, that's what it, that's a real person. Yeah. Can <laughs> yeah. I ask how long have been you've been doing podcasts? Um, that one with Pete and Noxie. How long have I been doing that? Well, yeah, we started the first time we went to Edinburgh in August 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the idea to do a show called 25 Days where we would record a podcast every day of the Edinburgh Fringe to uh, like journal it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we did that and we had fun doing it and we were like, oh, maybe we should do some other podcast together. Mm-hmm. And so we came up with the spooky idea. Um, so pretty much from then, I think it started in like November 2018. 18? Yeah. So what? advice or suggestions would you have for new kids kids (laughs) Um, this is the most annoying advice ever but like just just keep doing it for ages just do it and i don't know i hope you guys have had a nice afternoon but the important thing is that it's a it's work technically but if you enjoy doing the work then that's what matters if you get something out of it other than thinking that maybe it'll become a bigger thing one day or maybe Mm. money or maybe whatever whatever uh then that's good if you just enjoy the process of sitting down and hanging out yeah. with your boys and talking to a comedian. Great. I love, I love doing this podcast because I, I I think Radio Mike was on last week. I said that. I said, I don't think I'd be able to talk to you guys in a normal social situation. Yeah, nice. Right? Yeah. You can't just talk and just, even if you're at a bar, if you meet someone, you can't just sit and just talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. For, for that long time. This sort of, yeah, it's cool. Like, um, yeah, like I guess I know you guys a tiny bit before, but it, having a podcast and having a microphone weirdly does, yeah, give everyone permission to be mm. a bit more like, hey, we're doing a thing yeah. and we're having a proper conversation. Let's just get into it. Yeah. yeah, it's cool. What do you think put your podcast on the map? Like what was that one? Could you Can you give us some, you know, like a chunk of information that what can be useful that, okay, this was something that put – my podcast to another level or this is what my audience responded to much yeah was it funny or was it you know yeah i think uh 
I think it's always gotten less silly over time. Probably also that's because we record on Zoom now and it's a bit more difficult to like really fuck around and be silly gooses with each other. But definitely those early days we were like, I don't know how this is going to go. There's every chance we'll give up on this podcast in six months or whatever. So we just wanted to be as silly and funny as possible. We'd do heaps of voices and we were like, if we could make each other laugh, then that's what matters. I think in the early days we had some stupid bit we would do where we'd like, welcome to Spooky, we promise you one good riff per podcast. So we're like, there has to be one big riff that gets us all really laughing in the room and that's, that's all that, that matters. It. So we just focused on making it funny for us and... Not that you don't care what people that are listening think, but you're, you know, it's for you. And so mm. we tried to do that. Yeah. So you guys was just having fun and just having a good time. Pretty much, yeah. As long as we were getting something out of it and people seem to enjoy that. <sighs> okay. Look, man, um, I don't think I have any other questions, but I had a, I had a blast having you. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Yeah, was, so I feel good. like I talked the whole time. I didn't get to know you guys at all, but I <laughs> okay. suppose that's what it is. <laughs> Let me just give you a quick... Uh, like how we started. Great. So me and Dan work together, right? We yeah. still work together, work uh, in logistics at Warehouse. Sick. And well, one fine day, I was just like, man, Dan, I wish I had my own podcast. Yes. And Dan was like, do you want to start a podcast? And we started a podcast. We then. just jumped straight into we it without really thinking beautiful. about it or much of a plan. That's because great, I knew I if we procrastinated, we would just never do it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's like me... <laughs> Yeah, hearing, thinking, I think I want to do comedy and they're just doing yeah. it and then here we are. Yeah. I think that's great. You don't need to wait. No one has to give you permission to start doing a podcast. It's awesome. Because if you think about it, everyone loves skiing, but do you do you actually like do the effort to go up to a mountain, get <laughs> yeah. the gear and just do skiing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? So, but Dan was very good at finding these uh, stupid old studios, uh, just a shameless plug. It's great, right? It's great. Uh, it's great and it's awesome and people are nice. It's like, man, let's just do a couple of episodes and then we started bringing people in. Beautiful. And uh, Dan's a comedy nerd. I'm a photography nerd. Nice. And uh, yeah, man, we're just having fun. And it's I, I'm very, I'm very, very curious as a person. Mm -hmm. This is a great opportunity to sit down with people that I admire mm -hmm. in comedy or just adjacent to comedy to sit down and have a conversation. Great. And just say how much I love their work as well, because you don't sort of get that opportunity when you're. Out you know, just, just after a gig. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. You, you said, totally. oh, you know, good show, and then you move on with the rest of your night. Nice. <laughs> but, and very much the same thing with photography. There's, yeah. I'm sure there's lots of photographers, photographers that you admire that you'd love to have in here and say, yeah, I love your work, other than just liking their posts on Instagram. Open their mind yeah. and just look into it. It's, mm. it's amazing. That's great. Well, I think it's a great pod. You guys have a good dynamic and you're very easy to talk to, which is awesome as well. Thanks, so, those man. people like, not that this is an interview per se, but sometimes people would interview you and it feels very wooden and it's difficult to talk to. You guys made it so easy. No, thank you so I, I much like for coming. I like that aspect. Like, well. I do have questions, mm. but I sort of have like bullet points. Okay, this is one I talk to about and this is, you know. Yeah. If you, if you keep it wooden, as you said, that's such a cool word, wooden. I'm going <laughs> to use it now. Go for it. <laughs> and if you keep it like an interview style, then it just like a questionnaire it feels like a questionnaire mm. I, I just want to have a chat with you man and see what kind of person you are that's sick yeah you and guys know uh, it easy flow it's great shit thanks for yeah. having me thanks for being here and we hope to have you on again as well yeah and uh let's wrap this up guys thank you right. so much for coming in thanks boys awesome. talk to you soon peace